Chapter 1, Part 3 of The Eventful History of the Mutiny and Piratical Seizure of HMS Bounty, Its Cause and Consequences. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham Dunlop. The Eventful History of the Mutiny and Piratical Seizure of HMS Bounty by Sir John Barrow. Chapter 1, Part 3. The greater part of the food of Otahitians is vegetable. Hogs, dogs, and poultry are their only animals, and all of them serve for food. We all agreed, says Cook, that a South Sea dog was little inferior to an English lamb, which he ascribes to its being kept up and fed wholly on vegetables. Broiling and baking are the only two modes of applying fire to their cookery. Captain Wallace observes that, having no vessel in which water could be subjected to the action of fire, they had no more idea that it could be made hot than it could be made solid. And he mentions that one of the attendants of the supposed queen, having observed the surgeon fill the teapot from an urn, turned the cock himself and received the water in his hand, and that as soon as he felt himself scalded, he roared out and began to dance about the cabin with the most extravagant and ridiculous expressions of pain and astonishment. His companions, unable to conceive what was the matter, staring at him in amaze and not without some mixture of terror. One of Oberia's peace offerings to Mr. Banks, for the robbery of his clothes committed in her boat, was a fine fat dog, and the way in which it was prepared and baked was as follows. Toupee, the high priest, undertook to perform the double office of butcher and cook. He first killed him by holding his hands close over his mouth and nose for the space of a quarter of an hour. A hole was then made in the ground about a foot deep, in which a fire was kindled, and some small stones placed in layers, alternately with the wood, to be heated. The dog was then singed, scraped with a shell, and the hair taken off as clean as if he had been scalded in hot water. Then he was cut up with the same instrument and his entrails carefully washed. When the hole was sufficiently heated, the fire was taken out, and some of the stones, being placed at the bottom, were covered with green leaves. The dog, with the entrails, was then placed upon the leaves, and other leaves being laid upon them, the hole was covered with the rest of the hot stones, and the mouth of the hole close stopped with mould. In somewhat less than four hours it was again opened, and the dog taken out excellently baked, and the party all agreed that he made a very good dish. These dogs, it seems, are bred to be eaten, and live wholly on breadfruit, coconuts, yams, and other vegetables of the like kind. The food of the natives, being chiefly vegetable, consists of the various preparations of the breadfruit, of coconuts, bananas, plantains, and a great variety of other fruit, the spontaneous products of a rich soil and genial climate. The breadfruit, when baked in the same manner as the dog was, 
is rendered soft and not unlike a boiled potato, not quite so farinaceous as a good one, but more so than those of the middling sort. Much of this fruit is gathered before it is ripe, and by a certain process is made to undergo the two states of fermentation, the saccharin and the acetus, in the latter of which it is moulded into balls and called mahi. The natives seldom make a meal without this sour paste. Salt water is the universal source without which no meal is eaten. Their drink in general consists of water or the juice of the coconut. The art of producing liquors that intoxicate by fermentation being at this time happily unknown among them. Neither did they make use of any narcotic as the natives of some other countries do opium, betel nut, and tobacco. One day the wife of one of the chiefs came running to Mr. Banks, who was always applied to in every emergency and distress, and with a mixture of grief and terror in her countenance, made him understand that her husband was dying in consequence of something the strangers had given him to eat. Mr. Banks found his friend leaning his head against a post in an attitude of the utmost languor and despondency. His attendants brought out a leaf folded up with great care, containing part of the poison of the effects of which their master was now dying. On opening the leaf, Mr. Banks found in it a chew of tobacco, which the chief had asked from some of the seamen, and imitating them, as he thought, he had rolled it about in his mouth, grinding it to powder with his teeth, and ultimately swallowing it. During the examination of the leaf he looked up at Mr. Banks with the most piteous countenance, and intimated that he had but a very short time to live. A copious draught of coconut milk, however, set all to rights, and the chief and his attendants were at once restored to that flow of cheerfulness and good humour which is the characteristic of these single-minded people. There is, however, one plant from the root of which they extract a juice of an intoxicating quality, called ava, but Cook's party saw nothing of its effects, probably owing to their considering drunkenness as a disgrace. This vice of drinking ava is said to be peculiar almost to the chiefs, who vie with each other in drinking the greatest number of draughts, each draught being about a pint. They keep this intoxicating juice with great care from the women. As eating is one of the most important concerns of life, here as well as elsewhere, Captain Cook's description of a meal made by one of the chiefs of the island cannot be considered as uninteresting, and is here given in his own words. He sits down under the shade of the next tree, or on the shady side of his house, and a large quantity of leaves, either of the breadfruit or bananas, are neatly spread before him upon the ground as a tablecloth. A basket is then set by him that contains his provision, which, if fish or flesh, is ready dressed and wrapped up in leaves, and two coconut shells, one full of salt water and one of fresh. His attendants, which are not few, seat themselves round him, and when all is ready he begins by washing his hands and his mouth thoroughly with the fresh water, 
and this he repeats almost continually throughout the whole meal. He then takes part of his provision out of the basket, which generally consists of a small fish or two, two or three breadfruits, fourteen or fifteen ripe bananas, or six or seven apples. He first takes half a breadfruit, peels off the rind, and takes out the core with his nails. Of this, he puts as much into his mouth as it can hold, and while he chews it, takes the fish out of the leaves and breaks one of them into the salt water, placing the other, and what remains of the breadfruit, upon the leaves that have been spread before him. When this is done, he takes up a small piece of the fish that has been broken into the salt water, with all the fingers of one hand, and sucks it into his mouth, so as to get with it as much of the salt water as possible. In the same manner he takes the rest by different morsels, and between each, at least very frequently, takes a small sup of the salt water, either out of the coconut shell or the palm of his hand. In the meantime, one of his attendants has prepared a young coconut, by peeling off the outer rind with his teeth, an operation which to an European appears very surprising. But it depends so much upon slight that many of us were able to do it before we left the island, and some that could scarcely crack a filbert. The master, when he chooses to drink, takes the coconut thus prepared, and, boring a hole through the shell with his fingers, or breaking it with a stone, he sucks out the liquor. When he has eaten his breadfruit and fish, he begins with his plantains, one of which makes but a mouthful, though it be as big as a black pudding. If instead of plantains he has apples, he never tastes them till they have been pared. To do this, a shell is picked up from the ground, where they are always in plenty, and tossed to him by an attendant. He immediately begins to cut or scrape off the rind, but so awkwardly that great part of the fruit is wasted. If, instead of fish, he has flesh, he must have some succedaneum for a knife to divide it, and for this purpose a piece of bamboo is tossed to him, of which he makes the necessary implement by splitting it transversely with his nail. While all this has been doing, some of his attendants have been employed in beating breadfruit with a stone pestle upon a block of wood. By being beaten in this manner, and sprinkled from time to time with water, it is reduced to the consistence of a soft paste, and is then put into a vessel somewhat like a butcher's tray, and either made up alone, or mixed with banana or mahi, according to the taste of the master, by pouring water upon it, by degrees, and squeezing it often through the hand. Under this operation it acquires the consistence of a thick custard, and a large coconut shell full of it being set before him, he sips it as we should do a jelly, if we had no spoon to take it from the glass. The meal is then finished by again washing the hands and his mouth. After which the coconut shells are cleaned, and everything that is left is replaced in the basket. Captain Cook adds, the quantity of food which these people eat at a meal is prodigious. I have seen one man devour two or three fishes as big as a perch, three breadfruits, each bigger than two fists, 
fourteen or fifteen plantains or bananas, each of them six or seven inches long and four or five round, and near a quart of the pounded breadfruit, which is as substantial as the thickest unbaked custard. This is so extraordinary that I scarcely expect to be believed, and I would not have related it upon my own single testimony, but Mr. Banks, Dr. Solander, and most of the other gentlemen have had ocular demonstration of its truth, and know that I mention them on the occasion. The women, who on other occasions always mix in the amusements of the men, who are particularly fond of their society, are wholly excluded from their meals, nor could the latter be prevailed upon to partake of anything when dining in company on board ship. They said it was not right. Even brothers and sisters have each their separate baskets, and their provisions are separately prepared. But the English officers and men, when visiting the young ones at their own houses, frequently ate out of the same basket and drank out of the same cup, to the horror and dismay of the older ladies who were always offended at this liberty and if by chance any of the victuals were touched, or even the basket that contained them, they would throw them away. In this fine climate houses are almost unnecessary. The minimum range of the thermometer is about 63 degrees, the maximum 85 degrees, giving an average of 74 degrees. Their sheds or houses consist generally of a thatched roof raised on posts, the eaves reaching to within three or four feet of the ground. The floor is covered with soft hay over which are laid mats, so that the whole is one cushion on which they sit by day and sleep by night. They eat in the open air, under the shade of the nearest tree. In each district there is a house erected for general use, much larger than common, some of them exceeding two hundred feet in length, thirty broad, and twenty high. The dwelling-houses all stand in the woody belt which surrounds the island, between the feet of the central mountains and the sea, each having a very small piece of ground cleared, just enough to keep the dropping of the trees from the thatch. An Otaheitan wood consists chiefly of groves of breadfruit and cocoa-nuts, without underwood, and intersected in all directions by the paths that lead from one house to another. Nothing, says Cook, can be more grateful than this shade in so warm a climate, nor anything more beautiful than these walks. With all the activity they are capable of displaying, and the sprightliness of their disposition, they are fond of indulging in ease and indolence. The trees that produce their food are mostly of spontaneous growth. The breadfruit, cocoa-nut, bananas of thirteen sorts, besides plantains, a fruit not unlike an apple, which when ripe is very pleasant, sweet potatoes, yams, and a species of arum, the pandanus, the jambu, and the sugar-cane, a variety of plants whose roots are esculent. Bees, with many others, are produced with so little culture that, as Cook observes, they seem to be exempted from the first general curse that man should eat his bread in the sweat of his brow. 
Then for clothing they have the bark of three different trees, the paper mulberry, the breadfruit tree, and a tree which resembles the wild fig of the West Indies. Of these, the mulberry only requires to be cultivated. In preparing the cloth, they display a very considerable degree of ingenuity. Red and yellow are the two colours most in use for dyeing their cloth. The red is stated to be exceedingly brilliant and beautiful, approaching nearest to our full scarlet. It is produced by the mixture of the juices of two vegetables, neither of which separately has the least tendency to that hue. One is the Cordia sebestina, the other a species of ficus. Of the former, the leaves, of the latter, the fruits, yield the juices. The yellow dye is extracted from the bark of the root of the Morinda citrifolia by scraping and infusing it in water. Their matting is exceedingly beautiful, particularly that which is made from the bark of the Hibiscus tiliaceus, of a species of pandamus. Others are made of rushes and grass with amazing facility and dispatch. In the same manner, their basket and wicker work are most ingeniously made, the former in patterns of a thousand different kinds. Their nets and fishing lines are strong and neatly made, so are their fish hooks of pearl shell, and their clubs are admirable specimens of wood carving. A people so lively, sprightly and good-humoured as the Otahitans are, must necessarily have their amusements. They are fond of music, such as is derived from a rude flute and a drum, of dancing, wrestling, shooting with the bow, and throwing the lance. They exhibit frequent trials of skill and strength in wrestling, and Cook says it is scarcely possible for those who are acquainted with the athletic sports of very remote antiquity not to remark a rude resemblance of them in a wrestling match, which he describes, among the natives of a little island in the midst of the Pacific Ocean. But these simple-minded people have their vices, and great ones too. Chastity is almost unknown among a certain description of women. There is a detestable society called Arioi, composed, it would seem, of a particular class who are supposed to be the chief warriors of the island. In this society the men and women live in common, and on the birth of a child it is immediately smothered, that its bringing up may not interfere with the brutal pleasures of either father or mother. Another savage practice is that of immolating human beings at the morais, which serve as temples as well as sepulchres, and yet, by the report of the missionaries, they entertain a due sense and reverential awe of the deity. With regard to their worship, Captain Cook does the Otahitans but justice in saying, they reproach many who bear the name of Christians. You see no instances of an Otahitan drawing near the Iatua with carelessness and inattention. He is all devotion. He approaches the place of worship with reverential awe, uncovers when he treads on sacred ground, and prays with a fervour that would do honour to a better profession. 
he firmly credits the traditions of his ancestors. None dares dispute the existence of the deity. Thieving may also be reckoned as one of their vices. This, however, is common to all uncivilized nations, and, it may be added, civilized too. But to judge them fairly in this respect, we should compare their situation with that of a more civilized people. A native of Otahiki goes on board a ship and finds himself in the midst of iron bolts, nails, knives scattered about and is tempted to carry off a few of them. If we could suppose a ship from El Dorado to arrive in the Thames and that the custom house officers on boarding her found themselves in the midst of bolts, hatchets, chisels, all of solid gold scattered about the deck, one need scarcely say what would be likely to happen. If the former found the temptation irresistible to supply himself with what was essentially useful, the latter would be as little able to resist that which would contribute to the indulgence of his avarice, or the gratification of his pleasures, or of both. Such was the state of this beautiful island and its interesting and fascinating natives at the time when Captain Wallace first discovered, and Lieutenant Cook shortly afterwards visited it. What they now are, as described by Captain Beechey, it is lamentable to reflect. All their usual and innocent amusements have been denounced by the missionaries, and, in lieu of them, these poor people have been driven to seek for resources in habits of indolence and apathy. That simplicity of character, which atoned for many of their faults, has been converted into cunning and hypocrisy, and drunkenness, poverty, and disease have thinned the island of its former population to a frightful degree. By a survey of the first missionaries, and a census of the inhabitants, taken in 1797, the population was estimated at 16,050 souls. Captain Waldegrave in 1830 states it, on the authority of a census also taken by the missionaries, to amount only to 5,000. And there is but too much reason to ascribe this diminution to praying, psalm singing, and dram drinking. End note 3 The island of Otaheite is in shape two circles united by a low and narrow isthmus. The larger circle is named Otaheite Mue and is about 30 miles in diameter. The lesser, named Tiarabu, about 10 miles in diameter. A belt of low land terminating in numerous valleys Ascending by gentle slopes to the central mountain, which is about 7,000 feet high, surrounds the larger circle, and the same is the case with the smaller circle on a proportionate scale. Down these valleys flow streams and rivulets of clear water, and the most luxuriant and verdant foliage fills their sides and the hilly ridges that separate them among which were once scattered the smiling cottages and little plantations of the natives. All these are now destroyed, and the remnant of the population has crept down to the flats and swampy ground on the seashore, 
completely subservient to the seven establishments of missionaries, who have taken from them what little trade they used to carry on, to possess themselves of it, who have their warehouses, act as agents, and monopolize all the cattle on the island, but in return they have given them a new religion and a parliament, Rysum Teniatis, and reduced them to a state of complete pauperism. And all, as they say, and probably have so persuaded themselves, for the honour of God and the salvation of their souls. How much is such a change brought about by such conduct to be deprecated? How lamentable is it to reflect that an island on which nature has lavished so many of her bounteous gifts, with which neither Cyprus nor Cythera, nor the fanciful island of Calypso can compete in splendid and luxuriant beauties, should be doomed to such a fate, in an enlightened age, and by people that call themselves civilized. End of chapter 1, part 3